Genesis chapter 17, and we will read together the first 14 verses of this 17th chapter. This is the word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, Throughout their generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house Or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's pray together. Lord, Help us with this, your word, this very strange, strange portion of your word. Uh, Lord, help us with it, that we might see in it uh, the wonder of your grace to us in Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, when you were a kid, uh, say elementary school age, you may have had an experience uh, like I had when I was uh, uh, an elementary school-aged kid uh, in living in my neighborhood in, in Niles, Michigan. You may have made uh, vows and promises to your neighborhood buddies, vows of lifelong fidelity, uh, vows in which you would be friends forever, something like the Yaya Sisterhood, if you've seen the Yaya Sisterhood. And when you made those vows and those promises, maybe... And I I actually did this. I I think I must have seen it on The Lone Ranger or something. I don't know, you know, some some, one of those afternoon shows that that came on sort of Monday through Friday. Uh, But maybe when you made those vows and promises, you pricked your finger. And, you know, you get a little blood and your, your buddy pricked his finger. And you and you put your fingers together and you became blood brothers. Right. Now, what were you doing there? Well, you were making a covenant. 
you were making a covenant. And you did something physical and tangible, and, and interestingly, if you did the little finger prick thing, you did something that actually was a little bit painful to seal, to solemnify, to, to, to sort of make concrete those promises that you made to each other. Right? That's what we do in, in marriage, right? In marriage... Is a covenant. It's when two people make promises together, and there's a thing that signifies that covenant, and it's it's a it's a band, right? It's a it's a marriage band. And you see the band, and you know you know that there have been promises made, and people have made a commitment to each other, and that promise, those promises, are sealed with a ring. We've had lots of baptisms in our church. It's been wonderful to do that. Um, And when we have baptisms in our church, as I said before, we make comments about it. Uh, But this morning, I really wanted to focus the sermon on this business of baptism. Uh, because, Because what is at the heart and core of what you have just seen, sort of transacted here, is the idea of promise, the idea of covenant. So let me say several things about this, and I don't know how many there are. I didn't put numbers by them, so you're going to have to pay attention and create your own list, okay? But here's the first of them. Let's be clear about this. Let's be clear that baptism is a sign. Baptism is a sign, and it is a sign of a covenant. What is a covenant? I've already suggested this. A covenant, purely and simply is an agreement made between two or more persons. Covenant is a promise, an agreement made between two or more persons in which each party commits to certain things. Uh, Promises uh, in the covenant are accompanied by a sign, something tangible, something visible. Um, If you sit at the beach, here in Vero Beach or anywhere on the coast of Florida... Uh, Every once in a while, late in the afternoon, after one of those afternoon thunderstorms, uh, you're likely to see a sign in the heavens. The sign is a sign of a covenant. The rainbow is a sign. And it is a sign that God has left with us, signifying, reminding us, sealing to our consciousnesses that he has made a promise. A promise to the whole of the creation. A promise to you that he would never again destroy the world in a flood. Now what's really significant about that promise and what you need to think when you see the rainbow in the heavens is is yes, the rainbow in the heavens signifies God's promise that he would no longer destroy the world, but you need to remember that the reason God made that promise is because he had made a prior promise, and that prior promise he made in Genesis 3.15, that he would send a redeemer and a savior, one who would restore everything that is broken. And the reason for the promise in Genesis 9 is because God is a God of faithfulness, and when he makes a promise, he will not suffer anything to break that promise. 
And the prior promise that is determinative of all of the subsequent promises is the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, that after the fall, speaking to the serpent, he would send into the world a serpent crusher who would crush the head of the serpent and would eradicate all evil from his realm. This is my father's world. And my father is determined to eradicate evil from this world. And he made the promise in Genesis 9, because if he hadn't, evil would continue to proliferate and the inevitability of judgment would mean the destruction of the whole world. But you see, God intervened. God intervened. And because of that prior promise, makes a covenant with the whole of the creation. Covenant is about promise, and there is always a sign accompanying that promise. Always a sign accompanying that promise. And that's what we've seen here. We have seen a sign administered in the context of covenant promise. And that leads me to a second thing. And that is this, this second observation, something we talk a lot about here at Christ the King. And that is this, when you come to the Bible and when you come to a passage like Genesis 17, which seems very strange and seems like a different world and a different culture and an odd sort of practice, although I suspect you have some familiarity with the idea of circumcision. When you come to the Bible, you come not to a collection of books, You come not to a kind of spiritual digest filled with theological insight or truths for living or profound philosophical wisdom. You come to a story. You come to a story, an unfolding story. That is what is at the center of the Bible. And we've alluded to it, referred to it, in the midst of all of the diversity of language that there is in the Scriptures, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, a little bit of Latin thrown in just to spice things up. In the midst of all of the diversity of literature, history, poetry, prophecy, wisdom, songs, there is a fundamental unity to the scriptures. The Bible is the story of God's purpose to redeem a people and restore his broken world. And the story comes in two main parts. It comes in the Old Testament part, which we refer to as promise. The Old Testament is promise. That's what we've been saying, haven't we? Promise, Genesis 3.15. Promise, Genesis 9. Promise, Genesis 17. The Old Testament is filled with promise. The whole Old Testament is promise. Someone has said that Genesis 3.15, that passage that I refer to, ad nauseum in this church, is the main text of the whole Bible of which everything else is a series of footnotes, explanatory footnotes. It's all about promise. The Old Testament, or the Older Testament as some people call it, is the portion of the Bible that tells us of God's intent, what he's going to do. And then after years of silence, at the end of that Old Testament portion, in about 400 AD, at the end of Malachi, the last of the prophets, there's this period of silence. And after that 
period of silence, when people have come to the place where they think, oh my goodness, the promise has failed. We haven't heard from God in four centuries. It's all over. Boom! Angels everywhere. Angels splitting the heavens. Angels visiting virgins. Angels visiting old priests. Angels disrupting a quiet evening. Revealing themselves to shepherds on a hillside. Zechariah, Mary, and the shepherds. And then about 30 years later, after this explosion of supernatural activity, about 30 years later, a crazy prophet who lives in the wilderness, who eats locusts and honey, who dresses in a, in a, in a rough tunic, the leather belt, this crazy prophet, John, announces the appearance of the long-awaited, long-ago-promised Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And boom! There is an explosion into this world as the long-awaited serpent crusher, the long-awaited redeemer, the long-awaited savior begins his ministry with power and authority unlike anybody has ever seen. What do we have? We have fulfillment. It's fulfillment. Old Testament is promise. New Testament is fulfillment. One story unfolding with Jesus the Christ at the center. Now those two ideas, the idea of covenant where God makes promises, always accompanied by a sign, and the idea of the unity of the Bible are critical for understanding what we've done here today. You'll never understand what we've done here today if you don't understand covenant and the unity of the Bible. God is a God who makes covenant. God is a God who makes promises. And across the pages of Scripture, he makes promises with particular people and with their families. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 17. We've read the passage. You can see it. Here is Abraham. God entering into covenant with Abraham. You see him giving Abraham a sign of that covenant. The covenant is God promising that he will be God to Abraham and to his seed after him. And he gives him a sign of that covenant, the sign of circumcision. So you see it, don't you? God entering into covenant with Abraham. God giving him a sign. And you hear God saying that this sign, this covenant is not only for you, but it's for your sons also. It's for your sons also. It's for the subsequent generations. Okay, so pause there. Covenant with a sign. Unity of the Bible. Here is Abraham. God making promises to Abraham. God giving him a sign. God saying this isn't just for you, it's for your kids. Okay, hit the pause button. Stop for just a second. Make some observations. First, let's realize this was not Abraham's idea. This was not Abraham's idea. You trace Abraham's history. Abraham lived in Macedonia, in Ur of the Chaldees. He lived in a place of unbelief. And he was perfectly content to live in a place of unbelief. 
He was a pagan, and he was perfectly delighted with his paganism. Abram did not get up to leave Ur of the Chaldees. What happened? God took the initiative. We're talking about covenant here, and God making promises, and God giving signs that accompany those covenants and promises. But what's behind this with Abraham is God taking the initiative with Abram. Abram didn't say, I don't like it here. I don't like paganism. I'm going to go to Canaan and find something new. He was content where he was, happy where he was. God initiates. This is Michael and Jameson's story. God initiates. God calls people out of darkness, out of unbelief, and brings them to himself. Wasn't Abraham's idea, it was God's idea. That's Michael and Jameson's story. You must never forget. It's your story too. How'd you get here? I don't mean where'd you come from geographically, what kind of car did you come in, what highways did you... Spiritually, how did you get here? If you're a Christian this morning... There is one explanation for how you got here, and it's the same explanation for how Abraham got to Canaan. God initiates, God calls, God summoned Abram to himself. It's God's initiative, God's grace that is behind this whole thing. Abram has walked where God has called him to walk, but it is God who initiated and called him. And we've said this, I've said it three times, I feel like I'm, well, I am repeating myself, but here's the next thing. Wasn't Abraham's idea, God initiates, God calls. Here's the second thing. When God called Abraham, he called the future generations who came with him. He called his family. And he gave this promise and gave this sign to his family that is woven into the fabric of the biblical religion. Again, hit the pause button here. We, we live in a hyper-individualistic and self-referenced culture. I mean, the world is a hyper-individualistic and self-referenced world. Human history is a hyper-individualistic and self-referenced history. It's always all about me, right? I mean, I love the definition of a narcissist. Definition of a narcissist. A narcissist, true narcissist says, well, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? (laughs) It's always about me. It all starts with me, ends with me, focuses on me. But you see, in the biblical religion, the warp and woof, the fabric of the biblical religion, it's not initially about me, nor does it continue to be about me. It is about God who initiates, who establishes patterns. And this pattern is woven deeply into the fabric of the Bible, that when God establishes a relationship with Abraham, he establishes a covenant relationship with the descendants of Abraham. When God called me, summoned me out of my foolishness and darkness and unbelief when I was 19 years old, he didn't just summon me. It's hard to imagine this, but he summoned 
Katie and Leslie and Annie, my three daughters, and he summoned Lucy and Rosie and Sam, and I trust a whole boatload more of grandchildren. And when I was a young minister in the gospel, in my late 20s, I had a prayer notebook, and one of my first prayers was, God, let me live to be 94 years old because I want to rock my great-grandson on my knee. I want to see the fourth generation, and I want to see your faithfulness expressed across those subsequent generations. That's the warp and woof and fabric of the Bible. Covenant with a sign. Unity of the Bible. God initiates, calls Abraham, and then extends these promises not only to Abraham, but to the the generations that follow. That's what's reflected in Psalm 78, isn't it? There are four generations reflected in Psalm 78. That's why we read that passage every time we do a baptism. I want us to be hearing it. I want us to be reminded Again and again and again, that God has much more in view when he summons me out of my sin and death and darkness into relationship with himself than just myself. Some of you have that, that, that verse from Joshua. Think about this. And Okay, in the interest of full disclosure, let's just acknowledge, we've got some Baptists here. Okay, we've got Baptists in this room who don't get why we do this to babies. They don't get it. I'm, I'm not trying to pick fights here or create enemies or anything else. I'm trying to explain to you why we do it. But I'll just about bet that some of you Baptists have Joshua 24, 15, either on your doorpost or your dinner table or somewhere in your kitchen. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? Joshua, it's the end of his leadership deal. He's passing the leadership from his generation to the next generation. And when he challenges Israel to be faithful, he's thinking the way generations before him have thought. He's thinking covenantally. He's thinking intergenerationally. He's thinking about subsequent generations. He's thinking not only about himself, he's thinking about himself together with his family. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You get into the New Testament and you see this pattern reflected. People will say to me, and I get it, show me the text in the New Testament that says baptize babies. Can't. I can't. But I'll just, I'll just ask you to think with me the way a Jew would think. I think a Jew would say, Show me the passage in the New Testament that tells me I shouldn't baptize my baby because in all of these generations, they've always been included. And when you come to Acts chapter 2, verses 37, 38, 39, you hear language that makes perfect sense given what is woven into the fabric of biblical thinking. Peter has preached his sermon. The Spirit has fallen. 
People are convicted. They say, what should we do? And Peter, verse 38, says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children. For your children. And for many who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call to himself. I mean, I have to tell you, if I'm, if I'm a Jew, when I hear that sermon, we're going to come in just a minute to the explanation for why the sign has changed from circumcision to baptism. But if I'm a Jew, I hear the gospel, I realize Jesus is the long-awaited serpent crusher, Messiah King, the one I've been longing for and looking for for all my life, along with all my countrymen, and I repent and I believe in him, and Peter says, come and be baptized, I'm bringing my kids with me because that's what we've done. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then you move on deeper into Acts, Acts chapter 16. I'm not going to read the passages. I'll just give you the references. Acts 16, 11 through 15 is the story of Lydia, a Gentile. That's a beautiful thing. A woman. That's a beautiful thing. Lydia, who hears the gospel, repents, and she together with her household. They're all baptized. The Philippian jailer. Earthquake. Paul and Silas are set free by this earthquake, but they don't run. They stay there. The Philippian jailer thinks that because they've been loosed, he's going to die. What must I do to be saved? I mean, he's concerned about his neck. He asks a really pointed question, and there's a double entendre in the answer, isn't there? Here's how you save your neck. Believe in Jesus. And he believes in Jesus. And the Philippian jailer, together with his household, is baptized. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 16, Paul is saying, I don't think I baptized anybody. Maybe I did. Oh, yes, I remember baptizing these two guys. Oh, yes, and I remember I baptized the household of Stephanus. The household. The whole household. And then Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 13 and 14 giving counsel to people who have become Christians but who find themselves still in marriages to people who are not believers, advising them to stay in those marriages because through them the unbelieving spouse, he says, is sanctified and the children are holy. You mean this moronic unbeliever that I'm hooked up with here? is sanctified? You mean these vipers and diapers that he and I have produced, these these little terrors are actually holy terrors? Yes, because that's the way God has done things. What is God doing? He's building a people. How does he do it? He does it in two ways. He builds a people by bringing people into covenant relationship with himself from outside, and he builds his people by making promises to those whom he brings in from the outside so that subsequent generations grow up in this covenant environment and come to embrace and love and delight in the God of the covenant. That's how he's done it. That's how he's done it. And that is why we think 
it's most appropriate that we continue a practice that was established long, long ago in the days of Abraham in administering the covenant sign to covenant children. That's the pattern. Now, there's a continuity there, isn't there? There is a continuity of practice in recognizing that children are included in the covenant community and have a right to the sign of the covenant, but there's a discontinuity as well, isn't there? Compare the Old Testament sign. The Old Testament sign was bloody and painful. Somebody asked me here three or four years ago, folks who were becoming members of the church, why boys only in the old arrangement under the old covenant? Here's my answer. Every time a boy is circumcised in Israel, it is a reminder of Adam's Failure. I'm as egalitarian as the next guy when it comes to the inherent and intrinsic dignity of men and women before their creator God. But I believe that husbands and fathers have a responsibility before God that is not shared by their wives. And that responsibility is to defend and protect against every form of alien incursion. And every time a little boy was circumcised in Israel, it was a reminder that Adam failed at his station. That he did not lay down his life in the defense of his wife and his children and the garden, the good world that God had given to him. Every time a little boy cries out, in pain, as blood is let. It became a teaching point in Israel that pain and blood would be required in order for the horrific, ravaging effects of sin to be cut off and removed. And where does that happen? Where does that happen? It happens at the cross. The circumcision of a little boy in Israel, the sign of the covenant, pointed ahead to an even greater and more magnificent covenant than the one between Abraham and God. It pointed ahead to the covenant between the Father and the Son. And in that covenant, the Father promises a people, a bride for his Son. And the Son promises to win that people to the glory of his Father and for himself. And what is the sign of that covenant? The cross, the cross, the true circumcision 
where through pain and the shedding of blood, the sun is cut off, the sun is submerged under the curse of God's judgment in order to secure the blessings of the covenant. And who are the subsequent generations in view? Who are the sons and daughters of that covenant? They are those whom the Father has given to the Son and for whom the Son was cut off. They are those to whom the Spirit of the Father and the Son will give new birth, new life, recreating them after the image of their glorious Savior. That's why there's a change. Just as the Passover looked forward to the greater Passover, so circumcision looked forward to the greater circumcision, the cutting off of the second Adam as he bore the uncleanness and the sin and the death of his people. The only time Luke suffered this morning is when I took him away from his father. And he didn't suffer much. Luke didn't shed any blood. Luke didn't experience pain. And the reason he didn't is because the blood was shed and the pain was endured at the cross. No, now the sign is water. Something that gives life. Something that renews. Something that cleanses. Something that is filled with promise. The administration, the waters of baptism, is an act of extraordinary hope in the midst of an extraordinarily broken and hopeless world. It is a reminder that God initiates, that God makes covenant, that God makes promises, and that God is faithful to those promises. Are there responsibilities here? You bet there are. When Peter preached that sermon, he called upon people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a responsibility that Luke has here. He doesn't know it. That's okay. Abram didn't know what was going on when God started to call him. I didn't know what was going on when God started to call me. To make knowledge the supreme value is to misunderstand the nature of God's work, the way he initiates and summons people when they don't know anything. I understand that he doesn't know, but there is a responsibility. And that responsibility that is placed upon Luke this morning, signified in these waters of baptism, is that he would grow up to love the name of Jesus, the one who has secured the blessings of that covenant. Pray that he'll never know a time when that name doesn't thrill his soul.
I don't want him to have a life like mine and like many of yours. I want him to have a life like the lives of many I've come to know who love Jesus from the first moment they understood his name. Parents have great responsibility here too. Michael and Jamie, in that third question, assumed responsibility for giving their child to God without regard for, without regard for, what might come his way. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God? I don't know what tomorrow means for Luke. I don't know what next week, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, I don't know what God has in store. They took on an enormous responsibility in saying they would dedicate this child unreservedly to God and promised that they would pray for him, teach him, and raise him in the doctrines of the Christian faith. That is a real responsibility. And these parents are the means which God has appointed and through which, together with you, the wider church of Jesus Christ, God will work to see the realization of these promises in the life of this covenant child. There's great responsibility here upon Luke, upon his parents, and upon you and me. But God assumed a responsibility here as well. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, he has demonstrated that while he is mysterious and entirely unpredictable, sometimes not very safe, he is faithful. And I am going to presume this morning upon God's faithfulness for Luke for Austin and Caroline and for Isabel and Collins and Eli and for Sam and for Rosie and for Lucy because God has made promises to them and he has shown himself good. So why do we do this? Not to be trite or trivial. We do it because God wants us to so that he can show himself faithful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercies which are new every morning, tender, sweet, glorious mercies with those mercies cascade down across the days and months and years and decades of Luke's life so that across those days and weeks and months and years, his life, his life would be a vibrant, arresting, beautiful testimony to the glory of your covenant promises and grace, to the praise of your great name. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.